So these last two sentences that I just read to you, um, they're quite uh, odd, aren't they? Woman, don't cling to me. So like, what's going on there? You know, is it that Jesus has some sort of a personal space and uh, he doesn't really go for, you know, he's the guy who always does a sidearm hug, you know? Is that, is that what's going on here? I don't think that's it. I don't think that Jesus is um, frustrated with, with, with her for violating his personal space. But, but let me say this. Those two sentences, John chapter 8, 20, verses 17 and 18, that is the climax of John's whole gospel. And a lot of times in, in the Bible when something is peculiar, uh, you should stop. And you should say what's going on here. And in fact... Those two, John, John's gospel is astonishing, and it's those two verses that become the key to the whole gospel. So I want us to start there and to look at these odd verses for a few moments. Verse 17, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, and my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these two, these things to her. So it's an odd thing, right? I'm going to talk more about this in a moment. But John wrote this gospel 50 years after the events occurred. And 50 years later, he doesn't hide this awkward statement. Now, I don't know everything that's going on there. But part of what John is doing is he's saying Jesus is real. He's not an apparition. This is not um, a mass kind of um, hypnosis event. He's flesh and blood. The risen Jesus has a body. He can be touched. He can be clinged to. And 50 years later, John is unapologetic at that point that as Christians, right at the heart of our beliefs is this, is this astonishing belief that this guy... Re he really did die. He was really dead. And now he's really alive, physically alive, tangibly alive. But there's something that's curiously missing from John's account. It's interesting to me what he includes, and it's interesting what he excludes. For example, if you've grown up in the West or anywhere where the West has sent missionaries, and by West, I don't mean Texas. Right. I mean, like Western civilization. If you've grown up anywhere in the West over the last, you know, several hundred years or where we send our missionaries, when Christians in the West talk about the resurrection, they often connect it to heaven. Because Jesus died, you can go to heaven. Because Jesus died, your sins can be forgiven. Because Jesus died, you can have eternal life. But nowhere in John's account of the resurrection does, Jesus, does John connect the resurrection to our future life. Now, that's all true. The resurrection is profoundly tied up into what happened. Because Jesus died, because he rose from the dead, we can be forgiven of our sins. And we can spend eternity with God in his kingdom. John just doesn't deal with that because he has another agenda. See, John is not so much concerned about the impact of the resurrection on our future as he's concerned about the impact of the resurrection on life right now. 
John's got a much larger agenda than you can go to heaven when you die. Although that's true and that's important. And the, the, the agenda John is pushing begins with this. Because of the resurrection, Jesus really is the Lord. That's what Mary says when she rushes back to her friends, right? Jesus says, go tell them my God and your God. But what does she say? I have seen the Lord. Now, you need to know that this term Lord is not some polite title. It's not just a way of respecting, holy cow, something weird just happened. She's making a statement. She's saying, I have seen the only Lord. I have seen the only God. Now, look. We in the West who are so accustomed to Christianity dominating the culture have to remember that is audacious and arrogant. To say to all other religions, your God is not a real God. There's only one real God. See, it's only because we live in a Christian ghetto that we forget how audacious it was that Jesus, she says, I've seen the king of the universe. That's what she's saying. I have seen the one, the only one, before whom nations will tremble. I've seen him. I mean, what does that mean? Can you really say, I've seen God? I mean, can you imagine saying that in, in a polytheistic culture that she lived in? They had, you know, Rome had a pantheon of gods, but she's claiming, I've seen him come and worship, the very thing we sang, come and worship, come and worship, Christ, the risen king. And that's what Mary was announcing. So the first item on John's agenda when he talks about the resurrection is that the resurrection proves and demonstrates that Jesus alone is the only king of the universe. We cannot prove that. All we can do is claim it. If somebody says to me, prove it, I'm at a loss. He's the king of the universe. That's what I believe. That's what's changing my life. Before Jesus had died, he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed that he was the one and only king of the universe. And suddenly with his resurrection, all of that is validated. This is the Christian confession. And it's going to get you in all sorts of trouble. If you claim it. Unless you live in a Christian ghetto, then everybody just nods right, and smiles. This idea that Jesus Christ is the only God, the only true creator, the only king. But there's something else. Now, this next thing I'm going to show you in John's gospel is going to be really cool to those of you who like to study your Bible and you have lots of lines and markings in your Bible. Um, it, but you're just going to have to stay with me for a few minutes. It, it, um, it's kind of like algebra instead of arithmetic. We're going to walk through it, okay? And to catch it, you have to know this. John, who wrote this gospel, more than anything else, he was a theologian of creation. Okay? John was a theologian of creation. And over and over in John's gospel, remember, he lived in an oral culture. In oral cultures, they have tremendous amounts of information memorized. I mean, just think about how many phone numbers you used to know by heart. Okay, so in an oral culture where 94% of the population is illiterate, they have massive amounts of information memorized. 
And so in the New Testament, they had ways of referring to old stories by just a phrase, right? So if I were to say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, well, I'm tapping into a cultural moment and it's pulling into your mind all sorts of other information. John did this throughout his gospel. He would throw out catchphrases, throw out images, throw out symbols, throw out little references that would cause lots of information to be downloaded into his audience's memory. He didn't have to tell the whole story. All he had to say was, two men walked into a bar. Now, you know a joke is coming, okay? But when John starts his gospel and says, in the beginning was the word, everybody in his congregation would have known. Everybody listening to him would have immediately thought about the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look, you cannot say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself without bringing others. And you cannot start a gospel by saying in the beginning without every person in that culture immediately thinking he's riffing like a jazz musician, picks up a rhythm. He's picking up a rhythm. It's the first verse of the Bible. He was. And so he's he's constantly drawing his his listeners back to the very beginnings of of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, which is the story of how God created everything. So he's this theologian of creation. He's doing this over and over. And the reason is that John understood there was an important connection between Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the beginnings of all things. Fifty years he had been meditating on this. Fifty years later, he cannot tell the story without connecting it to the beginning. And let me show you what I'm talking about. So the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, the very first birth of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. So what John is saying is that in the beginning, this Jesus I'm about to tell you about was there. He's connecting the Jesus of now with the Jesus of creation. But there's something else. In Genesis chapter 1, those of you who are familiar with the Christian story, on what day was hu- were humans created? Does anybody know? The sixth day. God created humans on the sixth day. Now, every if you were Jews living in that day, you would have all belted it out from Shelby at two years old on up. All right? Okay, the sixth day is the creation of mankind, of humankind. In John chapter 19, on the sixth day of the week, John says this, Jesus is put on trial. He's been flogged. And Pilate brings Jesus out to the crowds after he's been beaten. And Pilate alone, Pilate says something that only John records. Of the four biographies of Jesus, only John picks this up. When Pilate presents him to the crowds, on the sixth day, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. Why 50 years later, three gospels had already been written. Why is he bringing, why is he telling us it's the sixth day? And why is he alone telling us, Pilate says, the man. See what John is doing? He's drawing the connection between Jesus and creation. On the sixth day of creation, God created man. Adam is the Hebrew word. It means man. I'm not being sexist. And on the sixth day of the week, Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and declares, Behold the man. Now, this meant something to John. He's not wasting words. 
He's not a sloppy writer. But I need to point out one more connection in order to pull all this together and to show you what I think it means for our life today. Way back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Finished. And all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work. So this word comes up twice. He finished his work. He finished the work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God finished his work and rested on the seventh day. Now, back in John's gospel, if you have a Bible, look at John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, now drop down to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Look, I just got finished reading... um, Ron Chernow's biography of George Washington. Just won the Pulitzer for it. It's um, 800 pages or something, seven or 800 pages. John tells the whole life of Jesus in how many pages? 60 pages? He's not wasting details, right? He's not wasting it. And twice in a chapter, he gives us a time. Twice he says, the first day of the week, the first day of the week. Which, by Hebrew record, according to Jews, is what day? Does anybody know? Sunday. Saturday was the last, the seventh day. So Jewish people observed the Sabbath on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. So God rested on Saturday. And twice John says to us, it was on that day. It was on the first day of the week. Or the, the next day. It was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. So what's going on here? Like I said, John's been thinking about this a long time. He's been drawing these connections out a long time. And John had come to realize that when Moses, whoever wrote Genesis, when Moses says, God rests on the seventh day, and that's Saturday. And then we read John's account, and Jesus is crucified on Friday. And what is Jesus doing on Saturday? He's lying in a tomb. He's resting. That's absolutely what John's audience would have heard by all these time references. You see, John is saying the same creator God who started the universe is the God who became flesh and he's doing the same thing. He's creating. He's working and only John tells us that while Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. The same word that comes out of Genesis 2. Only John picks that up. Do you see? John's drawing all these connections back. He's saying that original creator is this man. The the original working was broken, and now that same God has come back to do as significant of a creative work. He's resting on the seventh day. Now, what does all of this mean? Where is he going with this? What John is saying is that Easter is the start of a new creation. God worked once before, finished his work, rested, and creation existed. Now, God has come again. He's done his work, and new creation is here. See, John is not so much concerned about some pie-in-the-sky religion that 
you know, kumbaya or I'll fly away one day. John is saying, no, the fact that Jesus rose, it changed something ontologically is what we'd say in philosophy about the fabric of the universe. Things are really changed. That Easter really did happen. And it's not just about the future. It's about this world now. The world really has turned a corner. It's the first day of, the, of a new week. It's new creation, a new world. The, the creator who made this world and rested on the seventh day, thousands of years later, that same creator is here in the flesh. He's the perfect man. And on the sixth day, he finishes his incredible work of new creation. Look at John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. That's the second time God has said this in the Bible. It's finished. My work is finished. A new creation has been inaugurated. Now look at chapter 20, verse 14. Having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Mary didn't know who she was. Now, again, John wrote a biography in what, 60, I don't know, how many pages? Why did he include a mistake, a mistaken identity? Only he brings this up. Only he tells us that Mary mistook him for the gardener. What is he doing? You see, he's the theologian of creation. And 50 years later, writing the biography, John realizes Mary wasn't wrong. She was right. The gardener had returned. He has come back to his creation. And what has he come to do? To uproot the thorns. To, to tear out the thistles. To plant oaks and red buds and cherry blossoms and dogwoods. That's why we celebrate Easter in the spring, by the way. Because it reminds us of what God is really... See, she was right. The gardener had returned to the garden. Bottom line. Remember when I said John's whole point it's not that when, because Jesus rose, you too will rise from the dead and go to heaven. And, and like I said, that's true, but that's not John's point. John is showing us that Jesus' resurrection is, a, is as much about right now as it is about the future. He's telling us that Jesus is the prototype of what God is doing right now. Easter is now. It's the start of new creation right now. God is making all things new. Right now, the universe has turned a corner. And it takes faith to believe that. Because there are plenty of spots in this world that are still being devastated. And there are plenty of families that have been ravaged. And there are plenty of us in this room that our life doesn't look like new creation. One year ago, on this moment, was the, dark, was the darkest day of my life. I'd had a breakdown and I was sitting in a chair in my garden, almost in a catatonic state. And, and some of you have been there and you've been far worse than there. I'm not, like I said, we can confess it. We can't always prove it. Now let me tie it all together and, and point out John's big point. Verse 17, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, 
and that he had said these things to her. So John's big point is that Jesus really is the only true creator, God, king of the universe. And because Jesus is risen, and therefore because he is the king of the universe, you and I have an important job. This is where John is driving the train. He's driving the train to your job that results from this fact. His point is not about the future, it's about now. We have jobs, and our jobs are this, to be agents of the new creation. And John is really laying out, he gets to the climax of his incredible, nuanced, thick, theological discussion, and he then kind of gets really personal and puts in our lap a job. And he's laying out our job description. And first of all, it's this. As Christians, if you are a Christian, your first job is to announce, not prove, but just to have the guts to claim Jesus is Lord. That's your job. That's my job. To work up the nerve to form friendships with my neighbors. Like Mary Magdalene, our job is to announce Jesus is Lord. We don't have to beat people with it. We just have to announce I've seen him. He is the Lord. Look, if you take Christmas out of the Bible, if you take it away, you know what you lose? You lose two chapters at the beginning of Matthew and two chapters at the beginning of Luke. But you take the resurrection out of the Bible and you lose all of the New Testament. Our job, teenagers, your job is to tell your friends, no, he really is the Lord. He really, Jesus, it's just to begin to be children. Your job is to, adults. We, that's what we're called to do, to be agents of this. But that's not all. Not only do we get to announce the greatest news in the world, the gardener has returned, he really is the king, he really is the creator, but we are summoned to be a part of this new world, this new creation, where heaven and earth once again meet. And like Adam, we're called to follow Jesus, the gardener, and work in the garden of God's world. And you know what? We've all got different little corners of the garden. Now, over the next five weeks, I'm going to unpack this and the messages, and I'm going to talk about how we are called to be agents of the new kingdom on our jobs, with culture, in our relationships, in this city, and as a church. I'm going to walk through over the next five weeks just each of these different spheres of our life and talk about what it means to be an agent of the new creation. Look at it this way. The mission of the church is nothing more and nothing less than embracing and embodying and spreading the new creation. That's our job. And to do this, we've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We're not, we are called not just to talk about Jesus, but to implement the achievement of his resurrection. That's John's point. It really matters. It really changes things. And when we do this, we show the world glimpses that all things are being made new. So get this. When you announce that Jesus is Lord, you are an agent of God's kingdom. When you forgive one another, 
when you sacrificially give, when we make ourselves small and serve people out of humility, when we remind those in power, they will be held accountable by Jesus Christ. And their job is to work for justice and to bring wise healing to this world order. When we do these things, we are agents of new creation. And God's new creation begins to happen. We're unleashing the new creation on the world. And one day, every government will rule with justice. One day, God's glory will cover the world. Isaiah says, or Jeremiah, like water covers the seas, which is a confusing metaphor. Water and sea, isn't that... One day, that's going to happen. And he will raise his children from the dead and give us new bodies and we will populate this entirely redeemed creation. And when we do these things now, that new creation is breaking through. When we forgive, when we serve, when we give, when we proclaim his Lord, those are glimpses of the new creation. And if that's not enough, one more thing John is telling us about Easter. When we announce the kingdom, when we announce Jesus, when we embody it, when we embrace it, when we do these things, we will find ourselves being renewed in the process. Once again, look at the climactic verse. Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is what's astonishing to me about John's gospel. John clearly has in mind this idea that Jesus is the cosmic Christ, that he alone is the one true God. But he also is very committed to the ability we have when we enter God's kingdom to have a personal and even intimate relationship with God. So it's astonishing to me that within a few short verses, he not only proclaims the kingship over the whole universe of Jesus, but he also gives this very intimate that Jesus is the source of life. And this incredible intimacy stands at the heart of John. Remember that passage? And the disciple whom he loved. I mean, he's constantly bringing up this intimacy that is available to every one of us, no matter what we've done no matter our baggage. And this is one of the reasons that when you do work up the nerve to share your faith and you do what I didn't do yesterday, and I'm not saying I should have beat beat the girl, but when you do confess Christ, in those moments when you do help and serve the poor, you know what feels so good? Look, Look, it's interesting to me how John chastises fundamentalists and liberals. See, fundamentalists only want to talk about, and I know because I grew up this, only want to talk about when you go to heaven, when you die. And liberals only want to talk about doing good. But John cuts a path right through both of them and says, no, Jesus really did die. And the reason you experience life inside of you when you partner with God in what he's doing 
is because you are an agent of his kingdom. You are aligning yourself with his purposes. And in those moments, Mary, when you go, when you confess his Lord, in that moment, you get invited into this incredible intimacy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So I challenge you, teenagers and students, adults, all of us, be agents of the kingdom. And when you do, you will find the Spirit of God welling up inside of you and renewing you, making you inch by inch. The soul changes at an incremental pace, but increment by increment, you are being made into the person you were made to be. So you want real life bubbling up inside of you and flowing out of you? You want that? You want joy and love to fill you and and flow out of you? You want to have peace in the midst of incredible turmoil? You want to stop wigging out at every bad letter, every bad email, every bad phone call, every conflict? Do you want to have joy and patience and kindness? Then join God and he will give his spirit to you. He says in John's gospel, like a spring of water that is ever flowing. That's John's Easter message. Jesus is alive and his resurrection shows us that he is the world's true king and that God's new creation has already begun and you and I have an urgent job. We are called to tell people about the kingship of Jesus even when you don't feel adequate enough to prove it. And and when we do, when we are part of that new creation right here and right now, our life will be renewed as we serve and witness and love and forgive and do all of the things that will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. Bow your heads with me. And I want to invite you to take a moment to do an astonishing thing, that is to talk to the God who offers you an intimate relationship. And in faith, believes that he can hear all of these people praying at the same time in our hearts. And would you just, maybe this is hard for you to believe, and you're not sure if there really is a God. Then I challenge you to say, God, if you really exist, prove yourself to me, show me, convince me, help me to believe it. Maybe, like me, you cower at times and you need to ask for boldness. I just encourage you to take a moment to pray.